Well, the lights are going up in Sterling Ridge, in the neighborhood that we have resided in now for 13 years. It's always fun to see what new lights go up. Some of them we've come to expect. Some we look forward to seeing other times a new family moves into the neighborhood and we're given a chance to see something completely different. It gets dark early now, about what, 5.15, 5.30, so it's always a welcome reception given to us by the lights. If I get home about that time, around the corner off of Alder Drive, head down to 409 Sterling Ridge, and I'm greeted by the warmth and simplicity of these lights. It's fun to go to other neighborhoods, see what they do. Some, like our neighborhood, are this random array of colors, shapes, and sizes. Some are on bushes, some are on trees, and some are on both. Other neighborhoods, they get a little bit more organized with their lights. They hang them from trees as huge balls of lights. Other neighborhoods organize their luminaries and have candles and bags weighted down with sand. Each light show lighting up the darkness in its own beautiful way. And of course, if you want light overload, there's always the lights at Tanglewood. And I'm a sucker for lights. So even with the kids, not at home, Linda and I usually find a free night. We make a quick stop at our favorite restaurant in Winston-Salem called Moody's. Good Lebanese food if you're interested. Then we head over to Tanglewood. We turn off the headlights and we turn on the Christmas music and we soak it in. I think part of the soaking of the season, part of it is remembering the times that we loaded the kids up in the car with their pajamas on and we made it a late night on a school night. Christmas can make sentimental saps out of us sometimes and I'm one of those that can easily melt into being a sentimental sap, I'll confess, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's another light that comes into our world. At this time of year, more accurately, the light has already come, but the season of the Advent and Christmas reminds us of the light, points us back to this light. It is the light which John writes, which enlightens everyone, and is already present and among us. It's this light that everything we do points toward. We have lights in our churches and lights in our meeting house yard. We have Advent candles that give light. We have candle lighting services. But all of these are not the true light. They simply point to the light which has already come. The true light, John says, which enlightens everyone. Everyone in this cosmos, if you will, this universe. In the gospel that Mike read, John introduces us to this light. It's first described as the word capital W, which means logos in the Greek. It's a word that means this presence of divine reasoning present in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. Now, I know that's a lot of expensive definitions, but essentially John was reaching out to his Greek listeners, those that were schooled in philosophy and reason, and to all of his philosophical readers who felt the universe was just one random thing after another, and that it was this universe that was chaotic and out of control. John reminds them that someone has come that brings order to our existence and it gives it form and meaning. I would actually look at it this way too. We were designed to have purpose. We were designed to have meaning. Have you ever met someone who has lost a sense of purpose and has lost a sense of meaning? Their world just does not feel right. It feels chaotic. It feels out of sorts. So in many ways, from this larger perspective, the light comes into the world 
and in many ways our birthright, if you will. We were designed to have purpose, we were designed to have meaning, and it comes to us. And sometimes, and I love this language, a light goes off. What? And we discover it. And this word, this logos, is not a dry philosophical con concept. John tells us this presence is life. And this life is the light of all people. Christmas doesn't allow us to theorize about religion or get overly philosophical. Christmas doesn't allow us to spend our time trying to get our theology just right. Christmas and Advent invites us to turn our attention towards that which is life, that which is light, and allow this light and life to become life for you and I. And we live in a world, at least this is my suspicion, that brokers in death and darkness. There are those who deal in death and darkness, and then there are those who report on the death and darkness, and there are those who can't seem to get enough news updates on death and darkness. It's actually kind of addictive in many ways. And if we aren't feeding our appetite for it, we're living in fear and constant anxiety of it. And as we do, we feel the life within us slowly draining away. And we look around us and we see folks who have given up on living or they just don't care anymore, which is this kind of giving up on life in its own way. And sometimes we don't ask for the darkness, it just comes as a season of our life, a season of grief, a season of struggle. Sometimes it comes as a season of transition. But it's into this world. This is this message of Advent and Christmas. It's into this world that the light comes. And the light is more than just light. It's life. This is what John is saying. Into this dead, dark world comes life. And it is here and now. <clears throat> Again, it doesn't come as a theological notion or this philosophical idea. The light and life came to us to bring us life in the form of hope, in the form of joy, in the form of peace. But it's more than that. It, became, it came right where we are in the form of a human person, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. That has some significant implications, by the way. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The translation, the message, paraphrases that verse this way. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And I suppose you could say, well, there goes the neighborhood. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. You always realize that, by the way. God never makes us come to Him. God always what? Comes to us. God always stoops to us. God always takes on our condition. God always takes on who we are. God is a vulnerable God who comes to us and says, allow me into your life and into your neighborhood. Neighborhoods are where people live, with real lives and real issues and with real problems. Christmas and Advent reminds us that Jesus is not this far-off concept, but this real-life presence that comes to our real-life world. And this Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Now, each neighborhood is different, with its own issues and its own neighbors. But it doesn't matter the neighborhood. Christmas and Advent are here to tell us that Christ is coming to our neighborhood and a neighborhood near you. And no neighborhood is excluded. God comes to us in our neighborhoods. 
And God comes to us as this light in all of these neighborhoods. And God comes to us as life in all of these neighborhoods, wherever they are. Let me name a few. Some of them you recognize. Some of them you've never been, but these are neighborhoods in need of light and life. Ferguson, Missouri. Gaza City. Raqqa, Syria. Paris, France. Chicago, Illinois. Colorado Springs, Colorado. Moscow, Russia. Baghdad, Iraq. Damascus in Syria. Jerusalem in Israel. And Greensboro. And High Point. And Deep River. And all the neighborhoods within these little neighborhoods. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And it's in each of these places that God's light and life seeks to be known and make its way into. It's in each of these neighborhoods the light and life of the world has come. And some of these neighborhoods may not know it yet, but the light and life is present there within each person. It's just that sometimes there are those who live in these neighborhoods that don't recognize God, know Him, or even choose to know Him, and their darkness remains. But as John says, and this is the hope, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Even in its darkest dark, in the world or in your life, even in its darkest dark, it still does not extinguish the light. I want you to think about that for just a few moments. Think about the darkest dark. I shared this story before. But Lynn and I, years ago, went into a cave with a tour group with our kids. And one of the things they did was take us to this one room where we had to walk sideways to get there. The walls of the cave are right here in your face and right at the back of your head. And we're just kind of going along this way. And then we go into this room that has a light in it, and the tour guide says, I'm going to shut the light off and show you how dark it is. He shuts the light off. You know, after a while that your light gets, your, me, your eyes get used to the dark, there was no getting used to the dark. It was still dark. It was darker than dark. I couldn't see a thing. Did I mention I'm claustrophobic? <laughs> Did I mention I screamed? <laughs> Sometimes we are like people groping in the dark, trying to find that hope, trying to find that meaning, trying to find that answer, trying to find that purpose. And we think, I can't do it anymore. But if you can just hear this, the light of God is darker than any dark in this world. And there are parts of our world that are just groping in the dark. But the light of God is lighter than that. The light comes to our neighborhood, the one in which you and I reside. The light of life comes where we live into our own darkness, the darkness of grief, the darkness of bitterness, the darkness of futility, the darkness of meaninglessness, the darkness of hopelessness and despair, the darkness of sadness and loneliness. And it's in these neighborhoods. When I drive in at night, and I don't want this to sound strange or weird, but I'm still in the car, I'm not looking through the windows in their yard. But when I drive through, you know, I can see TVs on, I can see dinner tables, I can see couches. People have their windows open. I drive in, and as I see people sitting there, I wonder, what are they talking about? What's their conversation? What are they thinking? 
You see, it's in these neighborhoods that people struggle with real issues and that make up our real lives. It's around the dinner tables that they talk about their marriages. It's on the living room that they talk about their finances. It's, it's in the kitchen that they talk about their kids and what are we going to do or we're really proud. It's in the loneliness of their den that they think about their spiritual dryness and wonder wherever God went. It's in their living room that they look at the screens in front of them and they have fears and anxieties as they hear one more report say, this is breaking news. If I had a dollar for every time I heard this is breaking news, I could retire. Jesus has moved into the neighborhood, meaning that Jesus has drawn close to you and I. God has drawn close to you and I and has brought light and life right where we live. Right where you live. Now there's another implication for this. We are also that flesh and blood that brings the light and life of Jesus right where we live. We're like John the Baptist. We're not the light. We give witness to and testify to the light and we testify best through our actions and how we live our lives. Not only are we invited to receive this light and life, we're invited to be that light and life in the neighborhoods where we find ourselves, to incarnate love, to incarnate hope. That's what that word means, to enflesh, to enflesh the peace that brings peace to the world. We are to be the gospel in the flesh. And when that happens, it looks like this. We give the hand-to-hand pantry. We buy a gift for the giving tree. We share our time at Open Door Shelter. We take a meal to Leslie's house. We welcome folks into our fellowship as they seek direction, meaning, and help. We offer encouragement through our benevolence fund. We extend forgiveness or reconciliation to someone. We extend acceptance and welcome to the other, the other being the person others may reject out of fear. Glenn had a question for me, and I'll never forget this. Glenn Chavis. I never forget Glenn's questions. I... Stand in fear and trembling sometimes when he says, I have a question, but I never forget it. And, but he asked this question. He says, Scott, you say all the time, love your neighbor. He says, who is my neighbor? Hmm. That's a great question. And I think the best answer I could come up with at that time, but I think it was a pretty good one, at least for me, was I think, Glenn, your neighbor happens to be whoever happens to be right in front of you at that moment. That is your neighbor. See, back in Jesus' day, for a long time, they wanted to reduce the neighbor to the people who were like them. The Jewish tradition. This is our neighbor. They're of our tradition. They're of our race. They're just like us. Jesus came in and gave a whole different version of love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, he said your neighbor is anybody, anybody in this world that comes into your midst. Psalm 147 is a psalm that's in the lectionary for today's reading on the first day of Advent. And the last half of it says this, God the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, Psalm 146, excuse me, God who is faithful forever, who gives justice to people who are oppressed, who gives bread to people who are starving, the Lord who frees prisoners, the Lord who makes the blind see, the Lord who straightens up those who are bent low, the Lord who loves the righteous, the Lord who protects immigrants, who helps orphans and widows, but who makes the way of the wicked twist and turn. The Lord will rule forever. Zion, your God, will rule from one generation to the next. When I read that list, I keep thinking, and I thought this morning, there's my neighbors. 
the people who are starving, those who are imprisoned, those who are blind and can't see, maybe physically or they're just blind in life, there's darkness, those who are bent low through life and anxiety and maybe depression, those who are the immigrants, the orphans, the widows, the other. God seems to be saying, there's your neighbor. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and brought God's light and life to those in need. You know how crazy those Christmas lights are, don't you? One light is out, they all go out. Which means one light goes out, you just pitch it and you go buy a whole new set. Now there's, I'm sure, a very plausible electrical wiring reason for why it does this, but aside from that, it makes a good point. If the light that came into this world would go out, then all the lights go out. My light, your light. But since that light exists and continues on, we need to shine. Every one of us, we each need each other's light, and the world needs it as well. Henry Nowen wrote this, The spiritual life does not remove us from the world but leads us deeper into it. Spiritual life doesn't remove us from this world, but leads us deeper into it. So here's a couple questions for us to just reflect upon for a few moments. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. How does that speak to you? Maybe you're the one that needs, and myself, needs to enflesh the light and love of God in the neighborhood in which I live, whether it's my actual neighborhood or this neighborhood we call the world. Maybe I need to be that light in life. Or just maybe the neighborhood that John speaks of is your life, where you live, where you are. God's light comes into your neighborhood, your life, and wants to speak life to you. Jesus came into the neighborhood. Which one is it for you?